Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining me on Seek Up, the yoga inspiration show. I am so grateful for you and grateful to you for tuning in and sharing this journey with me. I am overwhelmed with how many people come up to me and say that they're really enjoying this type of communication, teaching, and sharing. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey of yoga, this journey of spirituality, this journey of mindfulness, this journey of seeking wisdom. More than anything else, this is meant to support the seeker's journey, meant to support you on the path. If you find this series of teaching really beneficial, the way that you can support this series is to become a member of the Om Stars yoga community and practice. We have decided to make this series free and available to everyone so that no matter where you are in the world, you can get the teachings that will hopefully provide sustenance for the seeker's journey. And for those of you that can become a member and give your support, please know that I appreciate it. And I'll see you on the mat real soon. It's important to think about the origins of the practice. Right? Where did yoga come from? What do you think? You know? And um, what do you think? Where did it come from? Yeah. What are the origins of yoga? Was it invented? You know? And this is something interesting to think about because things which are invented have a certain proprietary relationship with the inventor. You know what I mean? I invented that. Therefore, it's mine. You can't have it unless I say so. So what are some interesting inventions that are we think about? Like the iPhone, that's an invention. You know, and then there's all these copyrights associated with the iPhone. So is yoga an invention? What do you think? What do you think? No. Right? So where did it come from if it wasn't invented? Hmm, that's weird when we think about it. Well, if it's not invented, uh, how do we get something that's not invented? Well, was a raspberry invented? You know? Now you might say, well, m- maybe they do things to it. You know, uh, We don't know what goes on with food these days. So maybe it's like a GMO raspberry. It maybe has been invented and maybe like don't eat that one. You know? So with a raspberry that's in the mythical forests of Scandinavia, let's just take a really true the wild raspberry, a raspberry growing in the mythical forests of Scandinavia, which is especially um, juicy. And, you know, they, who invented that? Was it invented? No, it was just there. It was there. Through what? Through grace. Some, some, some force, some energy has come into existence And then this wonderful gift has been left along a forest path where we have come into contact with it. We have received it. So it's something, a gift, that some lucky person at some moment, some human being who was on this planet long before the iPhone existed, long before there was a structure of civilization, long before the architecture of of what we know as society was evident. And there was a human being maybe with language, maybe even pre-linguistic, walking along the mythical forests of Scandinavia and a red item stuck out. And then this being ate it. Wow, this was so much better than snow. You know, this is tasty and it's 
sweet. And they started talking about it or pointing at it or making sounds at it. So apparently, if you ask my husband about this, he says the Scandinavian languages are vowel languages, which means that they all come from uh, 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 um, which is like the vowels uh, still to this day. Um, I'm doing them very poorly. If you want to hear them properly, please ask him. Um, and you probably won't hear the difference, but it'll be at least entertaining for him. Um, maybe not for you. So, so maybe someone walked and said, for the raspberry and pointed at someone else, you know, try this, right? And then more people ate raspberries and maybe other red things, you know, strawberries and other interesting berries, but nobody invented it. So there wasn't necessarily a proprietary relationship. Um, and now, of course, we buy raspberries and these sorts of things, but it's this idea of where is the origination of things which are in some ways um, as ancient as what we know to be life. The story of yoga says that yoga wasn't invented by anyone, but just like the raspberry is something that you could say is a gift from God, a gift of grace, that is the providence of what we experience as something we receive from a power that's bigger and grander than us, that the origins of yoga are that type of relationship, that no one invented it, that the ancient seers and rishis of times past in deep states of communion with the universe, deep states of communion with God, received the teaching, that no asana was invented, but instead that that teaching was received to make your oneself open and then to have the, um, the knowledge poured into you. And so this is said to be the origin of yoga, as old as the search uh, for the meaning of life, as old as consciousness itself, that this is the origin of yoga. And this is why, um, you know, my teacher said that no one owns yoga that there can be no proprietary relationship to yoga. You may receive it, you may practice it, but you can't say I invented it and therefore I'm going to copyright it and take it from these people and give it only to those people and then, and then thereby create a kind of ownership relationship to it. Instead, yoga is in the same way um, that the gifts of faith, hope, and love belong to no one and yet belong to everyone that this teaching is universal. And at the same time, the paradox with that is that we can trace the lineage in the same way that we can see, oh, this raspberry tree is descendant, or this bush, actually, it's not a tree, it's a bush. Um, so then, so this bush is descendant from this one and this one and this one and this one. And this is an heirloom seed that we can see was alive thousands of years ago and has been and has been surviving in the wild from this generation to this generation to this generation to this generation and what do we know about heirloom things what do we know about them they taste good right so if you take an heirloom tomato and you compare that to um, some other very bright colored shiny tomato and the heirloom one is kind of weird misshapen. You compare it to this shiny presented, potentially um, copyrighted tomato. And then we know the heirloom one is going to taste good, right? I don't know. Maybe there are people that like this shiny. I think they're pretty to look at, but I would definitely go for the, the eating of um, the heirloom tomato. I'm particularly fussy with tomatoes. So definitely for me, that's, um, that's the one for me. Uh, raspberries, I will probably eat any raspberry that exists in any form or shape. But when we can trace that lineage, and that's what I wanted to talk to you today about what is lineage in regards to yoga. 
So when we understand what lineage is, we can understand, first of all, where yoga comes from. Secondly, we can understand where do we fit in within that lineage? And then we can understand what is our responsibility to the lineage? What do we owe the lineage? You know? Um, and so the first thing that I wanted to do, because I thought this was useful, is to bring the definition of lineage. So I want to read that for you, right? So lineage, the definition, and there's a couple of different ones, which I thought were interesting. And the first one is uh, a lineal descent from an ancestor, an ancestry or pedigree. And there are similar words uh, that are associated with that, like patronage, descent, line, derivation, heritage, roots. And I like this one, house, dynasty, origin, background, um, succession. And in regards to anthropology, a social group tracing its descent from a single ancestor. In regards to biology, lineage, uh, and this is an interesting one, a sequence of species, each of which is considered to have evolved from its predecessor. And there are some really interesting words in there, right? A sequence of species, so a sequence, like a line, considered to have evolved, not replicated, right? So hear that word, evolved. That's different than replicated, not copied from the ancestor, but evolved mm -hmm. um, from its predecessor. So those which have come before, interesting. Right. So, uh, and then, and then, in regards to a very small level, a sequence of cells which de which developed from a common ancestral cell. Again, notice the word "developed," not "replicated," not "copied." But even on a cellular level, the this very the, the usage of lineage in regards to this technical um, kind of biological definition includes development and the concept of development. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, lineage literally comes from the old Latin word that's, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but linea or a line. And then that came into old French as um, probably something that doesn't sound like lineage, but uh, my French friend isn't here. So she can't say that for me. So something old French, like you can't say that. I don't know. I'm, I come from the country that says croissant. So you know, and made a croissant, which, so I'm not going to go for old French, which became middle English lineage and in current English line. And in regards to the notion of lineage, um, the, 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 this idea of tracing to a source becomes very interesting when we think about, well, where am I in regards to lineage? What does lineage mean? Where does the line begin from? Where do I fit into that line? And it's the presumption and the necessity of that line to continue. So we have in Sanskrit this concept that, that yoga is an anushtana, uh, the continual practice, something in which we step in. And a way to think about an anushtana is an existing flow, like a stream. If you step into the stream, that stream has been flowing before you. And as soon as you step out of the stream, it will continue to flow. You can flow with it for a little bit. You can add things to the stream. Maybe you threw a rock in, then you have contributed. Uh, to the stream and positively or negatively, who knows, depends on how, what the rock is doing. Maybe you have built a dam and then you have disturbed the flow. This is, you know, at some moment, maybe the flow will be restored. Maybe you built a beautiful house next to the stream. And then in some way you've contributed to the stream's enjoyment. Who knows? Many things that can be done. But the idea is that the, the Anushtana is like a stream that has existed before you. When you step into it, you interact with it, but it continues after you. And the question of lineage re requires us simultaneously to look retrospectively, means we look back, to see where did the stream come from? 
right? And to look forward, where is it going? And then to look at ourselves, where is my placement within this stream? Do I look forward? Do I look back? Do I, do I stay where I am? And can I have this sort of multidimensional perspective at the same time? Can I look back while looking forward, while acknowledging my placement within this grand stream? And so lineage is an important thing to understand in regards to um, where, again, where yoga comes from, where we sit within yoga as a practice, as a lineage. Now, here's something interesting. Um, we all have ancestral uh, genetic lineage, you know, and I've never, has anybody done the swipe your tongue and then send it to a lab and then they come back and you're 25% this and you're, you know, and you're like, oh, look at that. I have 1% from Bulgaria. I didn't know. Maybe I should go find my Bulgarian relatives and be like, <laughs> you're crazy. Um, so, you know, and then there are people that are, you know, very, very they can see on, they thought, oh, I'm hundred percent this. And then they took the test and realized, oh, look at that. That's interesting. Um, so this is an, a genetic lineage that can be traced. So there is a question of choice. Of course, ourselves as a spirit have incarnated with these particular circumstances. In some ways, it can be argued that we chose our birth. However, it can also be argued, according to yoga philosophy, that our birth was decided for us by the type of life, the type of thoughts, the type of actions, or what we could call the type of karma that we have inherited from ourselves in a previous life. So we have somehow, we've had these type of thoughts, we did these type of actions, which led to our being being attracted to a particular circumstance that will allow us to continue whatever path we're on. And this is in some way a very uh, a rudimentary under, understanding of the way that karma is manifest in life. And it could be said that this includes a choice, but not for everyone. Who are those that make a choice which type of thoughts we think? Some people live unconsciously the whole life. Then what happens? They pass from this life to the next. And then what? Did they have a conscious choice about what, what, where they incarnated, what circumstances? Probably not. They just appeared. So there's a description of being born as the idea of having woken up from a dream with the feeling of never having gone to sleep. You know, imagine that. I didn't go to sleep, just woke up, but I don't remember ever sleeping. Your eyes are open and the world is new and the body feels weird. And then here you are, start again, you know? And then the, the feeling of death as having gone to sleep and entering into a dream that doesn't end. Hmm? Interesting. And then we wake up again. So the yogi is the one who has conscious intention over what type of actions we take. And we get to say that the yogi in some ways may also in some ways by, by choosing consciously different thoughts, different actions, different behaviors can then in some way consciously attract a particular incarnation and situation, which will allow more spiritual practice. Now there's something else that's important. Most people would say that this starts to fall between religious beliefs. Some people found a religion that don't believe in the reincarnation. No problem. Some people have a religion that they believe in a reincarnation. Some people say, I don't know. This feels like everything is crazy. I think I'm born and I die. I don't know. I think it's all just ants. I'm not sure. So it doesn't matter about that because here's something interesting. We can definitely trace genetic ancestry. So the little swab test, we can do that. We can figure out I'm descended from this person, that person, that person. If nothing else, we've all had family stories. So I don't know about you, but I mean, I've heard stories about what my, from my parents about their 
parents and then their parents' parents or their grandfather, your great-great-grandparents. There are these family stories that are passed on in pictures. Oh, your great-great-grandfather used to do like this. My grandfather used to do like that. Or if you ever heard this from your, some of your family, you look just like my grandfather. You look just, you remind me of my dad right now. And this is, you know, and you're like, okay, right. you know, you're just like your father. Oh, Okay, you know, and you think I'm my independent being, you know? So this is the bloodline type of lineage. And this is a lineage that some people would argue we didn't choose. We're just born here and then someone's you just like your father. You're like, yeah, I'm trying everything and within me not to be, you know? Don't tell me that. All right, you're just like your Aunt Cara. And you're like, oh God, I never liked her, you know? You know what I mean? You're like, no, I'm gonna be my own being. So we can say that this is not necessarily a choice. And our families are bloodlines and lineages that we don't necessarily choose. Mm -hmm. And this is where yoga lineage is different. What does it take to enter the lineage of yoga? If you're born into a yogic family, are you automatically in the lineage? No. If you're born into a yogic family and you never practice, you're not in the lineage. You had a great opportunity that you wasted. Yes, you know, but you're not in the lineage unless you practice. So practice, conscious choice and intentionality is what brings you into the lineage. And that's what makes the lineage of yoga different than any other biological succession, genetic succession, or anything else that we can trace, the succession of an heirloom seed, something like this, you know, that raspberry didn't say, I want to join the lineage of Scandinavian raspberries and then jump into the forest. It's just there, you know, but you decided, I want to do this yoga. I want to unroll this mat. I want to get on this mat. I want to practice. You set an intention. You're here now. Whatever life circumstance you've been through has led you to this moment. And with intention, you've joined the lineage. And the simple fact of your practice has assured that. So this is an important thing to understand about lineage is that it is an intentional type of connection. One teacher to one student, one teacher to one student, one teacher to one student. And we all contribute to the lineage in different ways. Some are students and do not become teachers. This is okay. They have received the knowledge. You see, sometimes the teacher needs a student, a particular type of student, in order to teach. And that student may never be a teacher, but because that student is there, the teaching is brought forth. Because that student had questions, and that student had devotion, and that student understood something about the value of the teaching. Because that student was there, the teacher reached so many other people. Maybe that student never was a teacher. That doesn't mean that just from their presence, they didn't contribute to the lineage. So this is important. Not everybody needs to be a teacher to help the flow of the stream. Some people need to just say, hey, there's a stream over there. I went in, it was really awesome. Did you wanna try it? And then somehow it's helping. Our contribution is different. Other people come in and then they realize, oh, the stream is nearly running dry. Oh, we got to do something. What's happened? Oh, there's a dam up there. We got to, you know, do, we got to do a lot of fixing to the lineage. At some point, this starts to happen. Now, when we think about lineage, I want to set up a juxtaposition for you as we start to understand the preciousness of what's being passed on to us 
and what we can take part in, what our role within the lineage may be, and what the role of our teachers is, and what the role of all those who've come before us. We can't even imagine how many people have practiced before us so that we can be here today partaking of the benefit of this practice. It is astounding to think about what adversity those individuals face, what difficulties, what struggles they face, and yet they kept practicing, and now we're here. What struggles will we face? What adversity will we face? So that we keep practicing so that the lineage continues, we must have the faith to face. In juxtaposition to lineage, I want you to think about dogma, right? Because sometimes people misunderstand lineage and conflate it erroneously with dogma. So what were some key words in the definition of lineage that I, I sort of pointed out to you? Do you remember? Evolution and development. This is important. If things evolve, what does that tell you? They're alive. They're growing. They're changing. They're adapting to circumstance. They're expanding. Evolution seems to feel like expansion, development. You know, when things get developed, they progress. They do not stay in a box. You know, if we, if we need to develop an idea, we need to expand upon it or enrich it. So let's take a look at dogma. I also wrote down the definition of dogma. Dogma right, is a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true, right? This means laid down by an authority is true and always true, no matter what, absolutely. That's the way it is, period, end of story. Some um, similar, uh, some synonyms are a belief, a conviction, a precept, a maxim, the, the rule of law, orthodoxy, doctrine, certainty, blind faith, unquestioning belief, Invincible conviction, unchallengeable, and I didn't put this in, but it says arrogant conviction. Right. <laughs> Some of the opposites of dogma I thought were interesting to include doubt and open-mindedness appears opposites or the antigens of, um, or antonyms of a dogma. So the origin of dogma is, is just in terms of its etymology is interesting. It comes from the ancient Greek, which originally meant um, to think and then evolved into opinion and then later kind of formed this uh, contemporary definition of what dogma is. So when we think about dogma in relation to the yoga lineage, one of the things that people get very confused about is respecting the lineage or operating dogmatically. So when we operate dogmatically, there's no room for development or evolution. And people with good intentions think that the way they can respect this anushtana, this continual practice, this stream of growth and energy and gifts and grace is by looking at those who came before and say, and repeating exactly what they did, copying 100% what those who came before did. And what happens then? Well, we become stuck. And the tradition then becomes dead. Or to use the analogy of the river, it runs dry. Any river over time that is alive and living shifts course a little bit. And now we construct things and we train the river you have to stay right there because my house is here, so you can't come over here. But the river with no few people to train it will move a little bit because of the floodplain, because of different shifting sands, because it evolves and develops. So the lineage is necessarily like that if it is to remain alive. The moment the lineage becomes a dogma 
an unchallengeable conviction, then the stream has run dry. The lineage has died. And if we are the ones who are doing that, then that's something we need to insert question into, insert an open mind into. In my opinion, everybody who, almost everybody who keeps practicing goes through a period of dogmatism. I did because I wanted to do, I wanted to do right by what my teachers taught me. And at some moment, we even try to copy our teachers and just do exactly what they did. And we don't even know why we're doing this. You know, I'm doing this because I just saw my teacher do it. I have no idea why. You know, why do you assist somebody like this and Pashimatsanasana? I don't know. I just saw my teacher do it. So I figure it was good. So I'm doing it to you, you know? And then, and then we just create these little mindless automatons that go around like a factory. And we have no idea why we're doing what we're doing. So and this isn't the purpose of yoga. And this isn't the purpose of lineage. This is dogma. And dogma is considered to be a certain type of stuckness, dullness. And if we know Patanjali's yoga sutras, we know that um, stiana or stuckness or dullness is an obstacle on the path. So when we have this attitude, this dogmatic attitude, it itself is an obstacle and a very, very deceptive one because it comes from sincerity and good intention. I want to do right by the lineage. I want to really make sure that I don't disturb it for future generations. So how do we know what the heart of the lineage really is? And this is where I really do respect what my teacher Patabi Joy said, where he said there cannot be teacher trainings because in a teacher training, what can we do? Well, on a rudimentary level, we can tell you push on Pashimatanasana like this because here's what you do for someone that's a little tighter and here's where this person can take benefit and here's something else that can happen. And there are anatomical guidelines and ideas of how things can potentially be beneficial for the student. But to teach what the heart of the lineage is, is almost impossible. It is something the student must get intuitively from being in the community and spending time with the teacher. And this is what's often referred to as transmission. Not every student will get that. Some students will get it immediately. And some students 10 years later will still be trying to figure it out. And the idea is that we consider the passing on of knowledge like the passing on of a flame. And the idea is that somehow the flame of yoga is lit within the teacher, within those who walk the path. And the student comes with a candle that's not lit yet, but not yet lit, but has the potential. And some students, they just come really, they get one little hit and they've got it. And other students, they keep trying. You ever try to light a candle that doesn't light? And you're like, there, like, it doesn't light. Like, try again, it doesn't light. Try again. You're like, oh, candle. You know, and you're like, throw it out. Mm-hmm. Very keep trying, especially, you know, especially if it's like your only candle, you know, only do this again and then you do it again. And then sooner or later, maybe because there was a thick wax on the wick or something like that, or maybe because it hadn't been lit in a while and someone had burned it improperly and you get these expensive candles and then they come with little instructions. And what do the instructions say? Please always trim the wick. You know, for a while I was like, oh, who cares? And then the, and then if you don't trim the wick on these like expensive candles, have you ever, have you ever had this happen to you? You just don't follow the instructions or didn't read them. You just kept lighting it and lighting it and lighting it. You know what happens to the wick? It topples over. And then when it dries, the wick is kind of stuck in the wax 
And then you try to light it again and you're like lighting it and lighting it and lighting it. And then it can't because it's stuck in the wax. So this is like someone, a student who's been burned by the path. And then they come into the, you know, by, by maybe a teacher who wasn't so kind to them. And they come and you try to let and they just don't get it. They don't get it. They don't say they've been hurt in the past or there's just stuck in there for some reason. And at some moment, you can do an operation on that candle. You can save the wick. And then when you do that, the flame will light. And this is why it's said that to be a teacher requires patience and endurance. So when you're with that student that gets it right away, it's wonderful. You know? But when you're with that student, that you need to perform a little operation to dig that wick out so that they can get the candle lit and try this and try that and try this. And 10 years later, they're still like, I don't know. I just, I don't, is it, does it really work, this yoga thing? I'm just not sure. I, I don't know. I mean, I really need to breathe. Is it, can I just squeeze my abs? You know, I don't know about these bandhas. It's just not working for me. You know, okay. Dig in a little more. Um, so when we, when we understand that, when we understand, okay, the teacher is there to work and continually work and continually light, then we can understand that there can't be dogma if that's to happen. So if that teacher is there saying, the practice is, you jump through, you look at your toes, and that's what the practice is, then it's already dead. There's no hope of reaching that student. And those students who, who are available for the teaching, then they're the ones who can really, really receive. So the best advice in regards to what is called um, a parampara, and this is the Sanskrit word for the lineage, is that the teacher is cultivating those qualities of patience, the qualities of compassion, the qualities of wisdom, so that they can continue to give. And the student is cultivating an attitude of receptivity and openness so that they move, both people, both humans move away from dogma into a living relationship. And the idea is that it's not necessarily presented as a traditional power hierarchy because there's a constant acknowledgement on the part of the teacher that this didn't come from me, that this is something that existed before me and may come through me and eventually be given over to the next generation. And this is an important thing to understand that even though the teacher plays a big role, the student plays an equal role. And I wanted to, where did it go? Talk a little bit about the idea of parampara. And if we look at parampara, we have some of the similar words of uh, as lineage. So we have an uninterrupted row, a series, an order, a continuation, or a tradition. And the idea is that the, the way that this was passed on is an ancient practice within India's tradition of spirituality. So you may have heard of these ancient texts called the Upanishads, right? Has everybody heard of these? You know, they exist. They're out there, the Upanishads. Maybe you haven't read them, but you know, they exist. there's a lot of them, the Upanishads. Right? So if we take the, the three words, the upa, ni, and shad, this means near, down, to sit. So we can hear the tradition of teaching. The teacher is talking, and you know I'm in that role right now, but I also am in the role of the student very often, and we can find ourselves sitting near the teacher. And this is where the Upanishads come from. That was an oral tradition that was being passed on from teacher to student. The student then takes the seat as the teacher and passes it on to the next group of students that then some will sit on the seat of the teacher and some will again receive the teaching. And this is the lineage that we can trace. And there are some interesting things 
when we talk about the parampara or this traditional lineage-based practice. And it is said that it is the lineage which contains the magic, right? That if you learn the same technique outside of the lineage, that we haven't received this um, intuitive sense of knowingness, what we could call the transmission. Another thing that comes up in regard, or another Sanskrit concept that comes up in what's called the Guru Shisha tradition, which is the teacher-student relationship, is that there is something called a sampradaya. And the sampradaya are different forms of that teaching. And this is, for example, a, the, 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 the teaching of mantra, the teaching of asana, the teaching of pranayama, the teaching of meditation, in particular techniques, follows different sampradayas or different houses, we could say. And these are houses not necessarily of genetic ancestry, but houses created of intentionality where people come to study and to devote themselves to that kind of highest revelation of truth. And then we can see in these different traditions and we can see the aliveness, the evolution. And that's important for everyone to recognize. So particularly in Ashtanga Yoga, we consider this to be a devotional practice, a lineage-based practice, but we get confused about what we're devoting ourselves to. Many people think I'm devoting myself to the teacher. No, this is not what you're devoting yourselves to. The devotional aspect of the practice is that you're devoting yourself to where the lineage points to and where the lineage originated from. So when we devote ourselves to this, we're devoting ourselves to that grand source from which everything originates and everything terminates. So we can think about this as moving beyond the teacher, transcending ourselves and kind of understanding the concept of devotion as not being one in which we give over our agency. Along that path, we have to respect that the seed of liberation exists within each of us. That means yourself too. Sometimes we can accept that in other people. Oh yes, the seed of liberation. Yes, yes, and all the students, absolutely. Well, and you too. Oh, me, no, me, no. No, I'm too terrible. Uh, I get everything wrong, you know, I don't know. I, I was mean to a dog once, I don't know. I eat weird things and even had a few cigarettes once, you know, it's not for me. I you know, took tequila shots the other night. It's just, I, I don't know. I've definitely, maybe it was there once, but I have killed it with the tequila, you know? <laughs> So we can think, you know what I mean? And then, and then we think very, very we, 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 have, we have unhealthy um, kind of self-deprecation within ourselves. And the idea of, of lineage assumes that you yourself have that seed of goodness and that you yourself have the potential to develop, to help the evolution of the lineage and that you will play a vital role in uh, the continuation of the practice and it's, devotional effort to reach towards the source. With included in that is respect for your own sovereignty on the path, your own agency on the path, what you could possibly contribute, how you could tend that sacred fire, you could say. Mm -hmm. So when we think about all of this, what I want to kind of impart to you is like the last thing to think about is to constantly check yourself in that paradox or that juxtaposition between a lineage-based practice, and the temptation of dogma. So where do we sit within that juxtaposition? And how can we navigate when we hit up against dogma? And how can we navigate back towards lineage? How can we invite into our hearts a more intuitive sense of 
um, you know, the practice, a more intuitive sense of respect, a more kind of unspoken uh, uh, receptivity to the transmission that we that we might have the benefit of receiving. Mm -hmm. Good. So this was pretty much all I wanted to talk about. And now, if there are any questions, we have some time. You got a question? Yeah. It's like. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a great episode. It's how I've been thinking, but I'm going to ask this. Um, yeah, like, what you said about evolution and change. And what about, for example, you, know, the, uh, you do a specific series and you do the series the same way. And they haven't changed and no one changes them. And so, how does that relate to the evolution aspect? No, it's a good question. And that's kind of exactly the type of thinking that I think is useful to bring up, particularly in Ashtanga yoga, because some people say like, oh, well, it's totally dead. So I want to help it evolve. So I'm going to make all these changes. Look, here's this other thing that's cool. And let's delete all these things which are not cool. And then, and then we think we're somehow evolving, right? And then, and then this is a question of, is that evolution or, how, or are, we, are we respecting it? Or are we disrespecting it? To constantly ask that question is very useful. Now, the other thing to think about is, is the lineage of Ashtanga Yoga the series of poses? Is the lineage of Ashtanga Yoga defined by doing the same series every day without changing it? And I'm very grateful to have practiced with Patabi Joyce and to have seen him alter the series for different people and to see him teach different people different ways. And I could see in the same way that you can trace the seed of an heirloom tomato back to its roots. You could see some similarities, but they weren't the same. And I could see the foundation. Oh, this is, I can see primary series as a rough architecture, but the rooms are very different in this particular Instance. Or or even not even a thousand years ago, just culturally. In the United States of America, we like have like a lot of chairs. And in the Euro like European cultures, there's a lot of chair culture. So then like and then we sit on chairs and chairs have been around for a while, you know, <laughs> at least in the you know European and and um you know uh, North American culture. Like they, they, they probably brought some chairs over on the original boats that came over from Europe, you know, and then we look at like the European thrones and all these sorts of things. But yeah, this is still to this, you know, current day. Like if you go to other countries, this squat box, you know, like there's even other interactions with the ground um, and the bathroom experience in other countries that don't involve sitting on a porcelain item. You know, so when we think about that, it's like, okay, so how do we, like, what asanas are most beneficial to someone that can't squat? And what asanas might be beneficial to someone who's so flexible, you know, that they can squat and back bend and twist and go like, what's going to help that person? What's going to help this person? And how can that all take base within the frame of the Ashtanga yoga method? And this is something that's just hard to get, hard to understand, because then we think, we can look, create, can create confusion. Oh, well, this student, they skipped, they skipped. So this happened, Patabi Joyce would sometimes teach some students not to do the jump backs and the jump throughs. So he would tell them, don't do that. It's not for you. And they'd be confusing. Wait a minute. Ashtanga was all about jump back and jump through. In fact, that's, anything, that's the only thing we do is we jump back, we jump through. I don't even remember any of the poses. I only remember we jump back and we jump through. But then uh, I would see him tell a student, for you, that's not for you. You know, that's not for you. I don't do this. And then, and then, and then we think, wow, 
if you were a teacher doing that, and then someone from another studio came in, then they would say, this teacher has gone off the lineage. <laughs> you know? Report them to the Ashtanga police. I went to practice in Miami and I saw someone not jumping back. <laughs> they only did the poses. It was like Hatha yoga. I don't know. You know, send an email to the Institute in Mysore. So then we missed the point, and then missed the point, missed the point. So if you take a look at, again, this sort of unteachable essence of the practice, then the teacher would know how to respect and in some way adapt, but at the same time keep true. So in a way to think about this is, um, keep thinking about some fun, interesting things like, like what's a, what's a, like, like, like the, the lineage of food, right? Chocolate, chocolate's been around for a while. Right. Uh, in some ways, uh, the, 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 the sort of traditional way of making chocolate, you know, when you stone ground, you know, like a stone grind cacao and then process it in a particular way and then form it into a bar and sorts of things. And then and then there's some updates to it. You know, there's different cultures which understand how to adapt without losing heritage. And, and this is a very difficult thing to do. Because it's easier to just check your intelligence at the door and do it the way it's always been done, you know? And it's easier to throw it all away <coughs> and just start doing whatever than it is to straddle those two questions and never have a definitive answer. Am I doing right by the lineage by making this adaptation? I'm not sure, but I'd like to try it out and see. And if it doesn't work, then I'm willing to let it go and go back. And even though I think I want to do this, but today I'm going to do this because this is what the lineage says. Let me try that out for a little bit. See if it works. Maybe it works. Maybe I have to adapt. You know, let me take like, I'm going to try out this chocolate bar. Let me see if adding mint to it is going to make it better or maybe make it worse. Let me start to have opinions, you know? Because, oh, I love that. I hate that. Go back to plain chocolate. Oh, well, the mint was not so popular. Let me see if we can add salt to it. You know, and then remove the milk. And then suddenly you get a lot of other people. That was great. And someone else is like, I like the mint. You know, <laughs> so in some ways, the lineage needs to be almost big enough to include little pockets of personality. How do we express ourselves within that? What's the way in which you jump through? What's the way in which you do this posture? What's the way in which you decide today it's appropriate for me to jump through, tomorrow maybe not? Today, it's appropriate for me to do only the sun salutations and the standing poses. And then tomorrow, I have to adapt it. Maybe I can't do the standing poses. It'll hurt my foot. I have to do something else. You know, and then all of that needs to be able to fit within the concept of lineage, evolution, and adaptation. Those, those traditions that don't adapt die. You know, and then they, they run dry somewhere along the way. But it's not an answer, but an encouragement to question. Understand? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. We have another question. Mm -hmm. Along the lines of, of that, getting into, I mean, I follow lineages and traditions, mm -hmm. and, but also I like to evolve for I'm a teacher as well. And, and, but I, I come across a lot of teachers that they don't even know the lineage comes from. Like, you know, and getting you know, into this Americanized yoga, which is getting harder and harder for me to call it yoga. <laughs> you know, because you know, I ask someone, you know, oh, what do you, what do you practice? And, oh, vinyasa, oh, you know, oh, hatha. It's, oh, okay, so do 
to you know do what Ashtanga is or Vishnadosh or any and, and they they're, they're in, they're like, oh I'm a teacher and but they don't know where their yoga actually comes from mm-hmm. you know and so in this you know for me uh, coming across this a lot like I've got to have my pride in my tongue. <laughs> do I help them? Do I teach them? Do I, you know, okay, you don't know that, you know, maybe Asa comes from, uh, you know, or, you know, that these understandings. And, 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 you know, I guess my question, you know, that teacher-student role, and you're having these so-called teachers that aren't truly being um, fully aware and, and with all the information in, in yeah. their trainings. And you had mentioned yeah. about not really having, you know, you can't really do a teacher training. That's mm-hmm. interesting because either you get it or you don't, right? Mm-hmm. People can go. So I think there's a couple of things. So first is that, you know, um, there's there's people that can learn like everything correctly, you know, and then, then they learn like this is how triangle pose should be. And then, and then when that is challenged, it's very upsetting. You know, and I interact with this a lot because, you know, I post videos and things like that. And there's always someone like, I learned in my teacher training that that's not how you do triangle pose. And I'm like, yes, I'm sure you did. So you don't do it that way. How about that? Don't do it that way. Yes, yes exactly. So, so, then, so then this is the idea of when you exist within a box and then you've taken that box to be true and you put your identity in that box, to have that box challenged is deeply upsetting. Deeply upsetting. It's like, but, but, but it's deeply upsetting. And that's why dogma is a trap because we're trapped within the dogma. And this is why it's difficult. My teachers, you can't really, you can't really do a teacher training. So you're going to give people these boxes, but you can create a space in which they can learn. You can create a space in which transmission can happen. And then, and then, you know, it, it's more systematized now in my story, but Patavi and Joyce, you would just kind of never know when he would sort of say, okay, you can teach. We kind of just be like, you know, like a random lottery, it felt like at times, you know, suddenly, you know, just come, okay, you're teaching now. And you'd be like, oh, really? Me? Oh, are you sure? Uh, it wasn't the person behind me? Uh, I don't know. Okay, uh, so what do we do now? Uh, but but the, it's a great fortune. So first of all, it's a great fortune to have met a traditional teacher. And so we have to acknowledge our privilege. And so if you are acquainted with the traditional teaching, it's a privilege. Not everybody has been. The second thing uh, to understand is that in any situation where you find yourself a teacher, if someone is coming to you and then they, they're looking at you as a teacher and then they're saying, you know, uh, I practice vinyasa and, you know, that's all they know. And, and you're in the role of the teacher, then absolutely. Then it's your responsibility in that moment to share more of the knowledge. It's really, really useful. Some really easy things to do if you're in the role of the teacher to um, inform people and educate people about sort of the lineage is to bring in some of the traditional teachings, to bring in one of the shlokas um, and sort of maybe even just uh, read it before the class and just say there's something to reflect on um, and, or, and then to uh, sort of introduce some more philosophical questions into the practice. We're in the Western world, we're very focused on asana. And I guess the third thing to really sort of question is this notion of respecting the the origin culture of yoga when we respect the origin culture of yoga this means we have that gaze looking back and if we're in a a community that's practicing asanas that we feel is not respectful to the origin culture of yoga then perhaps that's not our community if we find ourselves in the role of the teacher within that community 
then we can do something about it. You can help steer the stream a little bit, you know? Um, it's difficult when we're not in the role of the teacher and we just see people interacting in this way. You know, it's difficult because then we think, uh, you know, what should I do? Should I say something or do I not say anything? And perhaps one of the, the, the most difficult things is to not be dogmatic about what we think should be done to respect the lineage. So that there is a particular way that we wanna see people doing things so that we then create a box that we are in. And so it's so easy to fall into, this is how it's done, whether it's triangle pose or whether it's respecting the lineage. This is how you respect the lineage, you do like this, you do the, you have to talk about the sutras and you have to do this and you have to say that yoga comes from India and you have to have this type of representation and then we have to do, and then we fall and then we create a new box, we have a new dogma. And then, and then what did we do? We killed it just the same. It's so hard to be a living tradition. It's so hard to be alive in the living tradition. It's so hard to keep the knowledge alive. And, and, and everything we do is sincerity. So now you're sincerely trying to respect the lineage, right? We realize that there's people that don't even know they're in this sacred stream and they're doing who knows what to it, you know? Instead of, you know, respecting the holy waters, they're, you know, who knows, they're, they're partying and throwing tequila shots in the stream. And you're like, hey, hey, no, you know? But you don't, at some moment, we hope that as people keep practicing, you keep holding your own integrity and doing what you do and constantly asking the question of have I become dogmatic? Am I respecting the lineage? Where's the aliveness? Where's the stuckness within me? Then that in and of itself will have to be the teaching for those who are available for it. And you're not responsible for, for the student in that way. The student is responsible for themselves. The student isn't able to empty themselves up to receive the teaching. You can pour and pour and pour and pour. And if they're not, if they're not available, then they're gone. So there's this expression, you know, um, as an expression, it's, it's not from our yoga tradition, it's from the, you know, the Christian tradition, but it's a good expression. Don't throw your pearls to swine. You heard that expression before? Uh, like, don't give your pearls to pigs. Because what's a pig going to do with a pearl? And eat it, poop it out, don't do anything with it, you know? The pearl, you give to someone that's going to value it. So this is the question of receptivity. So the Guru Shisha tradition means that the teacher and the student are equals and that they both value what's being presented. And if you have a, the, the, the teacher that's malfunctioning or the student that's malfunctioning, then that relationship cannot happen. So if you have the student that isn't um, sort of receptive and aware, then they can't receive the transmission. If you have the teacher that's just not willing to teach that doesn't, you know, or, 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 or there's many teachers that are afraid to teach. Oh, I don't want to give this away. I don't want to give this away. These are, these are my pearls. You know, I receive them. They're very, they're mine. I'm not going to give them away. If I give everything away, then I won't have any more students. They won't keep coming back to me. So then they keep it. And then somehow the relationship, you know, then the stream gets stuck again. And they just give out little by little, little by little, instead of just, okay, well, if the student is ready, here's everything. Take everything. Take everything. Here's everything I got. Maybe I never see you again. That's fine. Go and light your path. You know? So it's more of, I think it's more of a constant questioning, constant questioning, because we can make new dogmas at any time. We can fall into new boxes at any time. Beatrice, there are a lot of uh, long paragraphs 
in the chat. And I'm wondering if you might want to potentially select one or two of those paragraphs that have been written, maybe uh, a mild one. Homer, like I can type. <laughs> Oh, okay. I just wanted to make sure it looked like some intense questions, but it was just a thank you. That's okay too. <laughs> Good. Okay. So it was just a deep thank you. That's fine. Any other questions? One more? Sure. Mahad, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. question so i think that i think there's sort of two there's two questions contained within your question the first first is you know where did asana come from you know and so like what's up with these asanas so you know and then and then there's this there's this question of well, what is like what's the purpose of asana you know where did asanas come from so if we think about this we can we, we first need to look historically at well where can we find some actual evidence of, of old asanas and so we can see for example in i think the prashupati seals which are these uh, uh, old carvings that were on some temples that we can see there were some awesome, not as many as there are today, but there's some that we find old representations of like 3,000, 5,000 years ago. We can see um, Padmasana, we can see um, this, this interesting asana, which uh, is often called Siddhasana. Um, and we can see Shirshasana, we can see headstand. Strangely enough, we can also see Mulabandasana, which is this, and then the, the heels flipping, so. <laughs> I don't wish that on anyone, but if you try it one day, I'm sorry. Yes, this is actually carved in temples. These, those, these samasanas, we can see, oh, these definitely people were doing them then. So now we can trace the, the root word asana, right? So asana, a seat. Right? And again, we have this upanishad, right? This, so there's some sitting that needs to be happening. And then the idea of the ritual seat. So asana evolved as this ritual seat. So a seated position in which you are devoted to that ideal, right? And so we could call this Ishwara Pranidhani, right? Or Ishwari, sorry, Ishwari Pranidhana. So we have the idea, I am seated and I am devoted to something. And this is also meditation, right? So we're, we're seated, we're devoted to something. We're seated, we're devoted to something. We're seated, we're performing rituals. So we're potentially a, a renunciant and we're seated and we're performing a puja. We're performing some ritual activity. But the idea is that this seat can take different forms. And this seat, the intentionality of asana, was always to bring the mind into greater focus. And again, we have this problem that not everybody can sit comfortably in these various shapes. So you have someone and they're on the floor like this and they're like, okay, I'm supposed to sit here and devote myself. Excuse me, I'm in a lot of pain. Excuse me, my, my, my thigh is hurting. And I can't sit there like you. How do you put your foot in the lotus? Because you have to imagine, you know, some very devoted 
yogi and then they get some student that's like excuse me i cannot sit like that do you have something i could do to help i have a pain and when i have this pain i cannot think of god or anything like that. i can't focus on my breath then you have okay um <clears throat> well have you tried to forward bend and no i cannot do that uh cannot uh, you can okay uh let's just stand up all right let's try to stand up Okay. Uh, do you do you touch your toes? No, I cannot touch my toes. All right. Let's try to raise the hands above the head, and then we fold forward. Now it hurts. All right. Let's go back and go down. You know, if you can see the idea. So there's. This, I'm not sure exactly at which point in the the lineage, the sort of genealogy of asana that it happened, but the idea is that these asanas were designed to serve a few purposes. Number one. Uh, to bring the mind into the body so you can feel the body and make peace with it. Number two, to prepare the body for long sits so that pain and discomfort in the body is no longer an obstacle to the long sits, right? Um, and then, and then uh, number three, and that asana itself begins to be a form of devotion so that by giving ourselves up to face the impossible, we start to understand what devotion is. But it's not asana that we become devoted to, but it's a form through which we express a type of devotion. And, and that type of devotion is a kinesthetic devotion, like a feeling-based devotion. Like with our bodies, we yearn. And then we can move through that. And so then this is, this is that, that, that key component. And I feel like one of the reasons why asana is so like, popular globally is that in this contemporary age, we have, particularly in the Western culture, we have, um, and I mean that by like capital West, not only geography wise, right? Uh, that, that, we, that there's been a big um, divorce of mind and body. And there's been so much emphasis on sort of what we could call worshiping at the temple of the mind. And then the body has been relegated to the realm of, you know, um, the other, the foreign, the darkness, the unknown, the conquerable and, and, and the forgotten. And then, and in this way, we've become, um, uh, you know, um, disjointed, separated from ourselves and very far from whole. So that particularly what's missing in um, the, the Western search for meaning is this connection into the unsaid, the unseen, but the felt experience of yearning and devotion. And then this is my, you know, my, my, um, my teacher, Pratabi Joyce, didn't always teach so much asana, but for the Western students, he said asana, asana, asana for many years. And I think that has something to do with it because the Western students would come into him and they would say, ask him these like really dogmatic questions. Like in Janashasana A, is the knee out to the side exactly 90 degrees? But what if it's 85 degrees? Is that okay too? And he would be like, oh, Okay, 90 degrees. Okay, no problem. But what if it's what if it's a little can I put it back also? It'd be like, okay, you put it back. Okay, you know, okay, better, okay, go forward, breathe. But but it's 90 degrees. Okay, 90 degrees. And then it became John your sauce today is 90 degrees out to this. And then and then you know, I mean, I think he's on the other end going, take asana, asana, asana. Theoretical question later, later, later. Just breathe. Ugh. You know? And so then, like, this is literally seeing people argue with him about this, you know? And then and then, and then at some moment, I mean, Fatabi Joyce at some moment would just start, you know, like 
quoting some shloka in Sanskrit. And then that was kind of his out. He would just be like, oh, <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> that would kind of be the end of the discussion. You'd be like, like, I absolutely don't know what you said. You just spoke in Sanskrit for five minutes. I um, should have had the audio recorder on. <laughs> Right. And then and then um, and then I, I think that the, that the second part of your question contains this um, notion of um, how how modern is asana in relation to that long history. Right. So we have to acknowledge that uh, that 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 asana practice probably looked dramatically different, you know, thousands of years ago. Even just to think about the contemporary adaptations, which are wonderful, wonderfully made to our advantage, you know. Like the West does industry really well. So like suddenly we realize people do yoga. Let's make an awesome mat. So just the evolution of yoga mats, like, you know, wow. I mean, I remember my first mat was horrible. Yeah, I, within a month, the thing would, would make the like popcorn all over and I'd jump through and then be like, you know, and every time I rolled up my mat, there'd be like a popcorn left after me, you know, it's kind of awful and really bad for the environment too. And then if we think about the evolution, just of blocks, you know, there's blocks you can sit on. Imagine a yoga practitioner a thousand years ago that had a knee pain. They would just be like, ow, I don't know, ow. Uh, let me go get like a, I don't know, the lump of a tree and I'll try to sit on that to do my asana here. So because we think of some really modern inventions. They're great, like yoga straps and bolsters to sit on. All these things are great. And then we have to think, well, there's, there's probably been some you know, so, so some different asanas that have come up. There's this, there's this um, saying that as many living beings as there are, that's how many asanas there can be. So if we think about that, we think, oh, well, now so many more people are practicing yoga. So so many more this asana, that asana, this asana, that asana, this asana, that asana. Krishnamacharya was said to learn from his teacher so many asanas, but even the amount of asanas we have now is actually quite small, you know? So that that is interesting to think about, um, there are influences that come in, again, that can direct the steam in a particular way. So as long as we're, I feel as long as we're constantly looking back to where it came from and constantly looking forward to where it might go, even if there are some modern additions that might come in, that that lineage can be protected. And I really appreciate that you brought it in um, the, the notion of that traditional Guru Shisha um, you know, relationship as talked about in you know, the Mahabharata, particularly the Gita is the most classical um, presentation of the, the teacher-student relationship, you know? And I, I just talk about that before we end, and I know we're a little over time, is that the idea that Arjuna, the warrior prince, is a student of Krishna, right? And so we can see this lineage. And the idea is that because Arjuna is the student that he is and asks the questions that he asks, we have the teaching of the Gita. And, which is amazing, we think about that. Without Arjuna being who he was, we wouldn't have that teaching. So he's a student that brought that forth from the teacher, number one. Number two, we can also see he is not the copy of Krishna. He did not replicate Krishna. He's himself. Yeah? And in this way, he's continuing the lineage and opening up this path for us to understand how to be the student, to be respectful of the teacher. And the teacher is available for whoever is there. So not only is Krishna available to Arjuna, but Krishna is available to who comes and interacts with whoever comes based on what they bring. And then this is how the teacher-student relationship goes both ways, right? And it's not a copy, but it's an evolution and a development that can bring forth magical gifts of teaching that can benefit so many. So we, we think about that as we, as we continue. Okay. 
Good. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.